0: Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So in the spirit of that heritage, I ask that you greet the divine in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning was written by Annie Dillard. We are here to abet creation and to witness to it. To notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. The year before I got here um, you all got together and talked about your goals. And from that, the board wrote a mission statement or the board and its helper committee. You wrote it on the wall. We say it every Sunday. Right now, we're in our seventh year since that was written, and we promise to reexamine every seven years. So you've been having meetings with the board this whole month, and if you haven't gotten to one of them, there's one at 1215 today, so right after this in room 17, um, that you can have a conversation with the board about this. They have a particular question they're going to be asking us. And the, so the board can see whether this might need to be tweaked or changed, um, added to or subtracted from. We love it, but we also want to be open to not writing in in stone and getting rigid about it because we're Unitarian Universalists. But until it is changed or if it is changed, which it might not be, we will say it together. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now is the time in our service when we enter the wise silence together. That's what Ralph Waldo Emerson called it, the wise silence. We go into the silence in order to speak to and listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom, or just follow our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies. In this congregation, noises of life and the tiny noises of children count as part of the silence. Let us breathe together. This morning I'm going to tell you the story of Elijah. Why? Because I would not have you be ignorant. <laughs> By the end of this, you will know some things about Elijah's story, and you will know how to tell the difference between Elijah and Elisha, which will put you in the top 10% of whatever room you're in at the time. <laughs> the, um, the actual title of this sermon is, Why Everybody Hates a Prophet. Elijah was a prophet. His story is in uh, the book of Kings in the Hebrew scriptures. And he came during the reign of King Ahab, who was the um, in a long line of very wicked kings who had tumultuous reigns. One of the ones that came right before Ahab only reigned for seven days before he got overthrown. And um, Ahab yet reigned 22 years. So he had strength and ruthlessness in order to reign for 22 years. The first time we meet Elijah, he's showing up at the court of Abraham. Uh, Sorry, Ahab, King Ahab. Abraham's not in this story. He's in the court of Ahab, and what he says to Ahab is, you and your family have been wicked. You married a priestess of Baal. Baal was the fertility god whose religion was in the nations surrounding Israel. Another little bit of information. Israel is the name of the northern kingdom. Judea is the name of the southern kingdom. And Israel and Judea together are what we now call Israel. Um, So Elijah is a prophet of the northern kingdom. Ahab was a king of the northern kingdom, the king of Israel. So he had married Jezebel, who was from what is now Lebanon-ish, and she uh, was a worshiper. In, in fact, she was a priestess of the fertility god, Baal. And she also loved Asherah, the goddess. And she was surrounded by 450 priests of Baal and 400 priestesses of um, Asherah. And she lived in the, in the palace, of course. And she had been uh, pressuring her husband to worship Baal and Asherah, along with the God of Israel. Some people say Yahweh, but if you're a Jewish person, you don't like to say the name God, Yahweh, you say Adonai instead. So Adonai just translates the Lord. So does Baal translate the Lord. But they were different lords, different gods. Back then, this um, idea of religious tolerance was not uh, in vogue. Elijah shows up at the court of Ahab and he says, you are wicked and your family is wicked. And I am not going to let it rain here until I say so. Well, you're in a Mediterranean climate. It's very much like this one. Um, Having a drought is a bad thing. And Ahab, I don't know if he listened or believed Elijah. He might have just gone, yeah, I hear you talking. Prophets do that. They tell us how wicked we are. They're very rude and disruptive. And then they go away and nothing changes. And so Elijah went away. God told him to go to this particular gorge and he was going to drink from the stream that came through the gorge. And God said he was going to send ravens in the morning and ravens in the evening to feed Elijah with meat and bread. And so that's how it happened. Elijah sat by the stream, he drank from the stream, he was fed by the ravens morning and evening uh, for a while until because of the lack of rain, the stream dried up. God told him to go to a certain village that was very near where Jezebel had been born herself and he went to a village and God said, you're going to find a widow there who will feed you and the widow had a small son. And Elijah came up to the village, and he saw this woman who was gathering sticks for a fire. And he said, I'm hungry. Will you feed me? And she said, oh, sir, uh, I have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and I was going to build a fire with these sticks and make a little loaf for my son and for me, and then we're going to die. And he said, it'll be okay. Just make me some bread. And so she did. She made him a loaf with the fire and the oil and the flour, and he ate. And then there was flour and oil left over for a loaf for her and her son. He moved into the upper room in her house and was her guest for three years. And as long as he was there, it didn't rain, and she had enough oil and enough flour to make bread for herself and her son. One day her son got really sick, and he was breathing uh, weirdly, uh, slower and slower, and finally he didn't breathe at all. And so she came to Elijah and said, what is this? You're doing a miracle with my flour and my oil, and my son now is dying? Um, This is terrible. Did you just come live in my house so that you could make fun of me and, and kill off my son? Magic man. And he took the boy, and took him up to his upper room, and he uh, prayed to God, because he didn't know what to do. And he was like, God, what is this? I'm do you, You're making flour and oil, and you know, I'm paraphrasing the story a little bit. Um, <laughs> and now this tragedy is befalling this widow woman. Her son is all she's got. I mean, if she doesn't have a a kid that's going to grow up and support her, then she's toast in this world. Um, she's, she's. You've got to help this boy. And so he laid down on the boy three times, and then the boy started breathing again, and he brought him back downstairs, and he said, here you go. Your son's alive. And the lady was very happy. So after three years, God came to him again and said, time to go to the court of Ahab. And tell him that it's going to rain. So Elijah is obedient and goes toward the court of Ahab. And on the road, he meets Obadiah, who is Ahab's right hand guy, the guy who's in charge of his whole household, um, his chief of staff, if you will. And Obadiah is a secret believer in the God of Israel. Jezebel had gone on one of her priest-slaughtering kicks, which she did for a while. She slaughtered a lot of the priests of the God of Israel. Um, Obadiah had hidden a 100 of them, 50 in one cave and 50 in another cave. He brought them food, and he brought them water and kept them alive until Jezebel was on to her next thing. And um, so Obadiah meets Elijah on the road and says, is that you, Elijah? And Elijah says, yes, I'm going to the court of Ahab to tell him it's going to rain now. Would you go on, run on ahead of me and tell him I'm going to be there? And Obadiah said, oh, don't, please don't ask me to do that because you're a prophet and prophets are like here one day and gone the next. I don't know where you're going to be. Ahab's had people looking for you in every country. They can't find you. Um, If you don't show up, he's going to torture me. And uh, that's. You know, I, I helped save those priests, and I'm a really good guy. And Elijah said, I'll show up today. Don't worry about it. Go tell him. And so Obadiah went and told Ahab, and Ahab came running out and came to meet Elijah on the road. And he said, this is my favorite part of the whole story because it's very, it's very Black Lives Matter to me. So he comes out and he says, I'm going to get this just right so that I can um, share it with you correctly, not paraphrasing. So he saw saw Elijah and he said to to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the God. Anyway, he goes on and lists the sins. And it feels to me so true that when you begin speaking truth to power, they feel troubled, and they feel like the trouble is from you. But is it? No. You're just pointing out the trouble. You ask a question, people look at you as if you're rude. You're disrupting. Why are you doing this? I I went on a Boy Scout tour of the water system in South Carolina where we lived, and I was a little surprised. There was a lake, a reservoir that we got all our water from, and people lived all along the lake, and they put, like, lawn chemicals on their lawns and that kind of thing, and they showed us a cross-section of their filter, and it was, you know, sand, charcoal, leaves. And I said, really? Sand, charcoal, leaves? Is that enough to take lawn chemicals out? They said, it's very clean. And I was like, well, "Really? Are you sure because there's chemicals." I mean, I don't know, really, I'm open-minded. You just tell me. And the other parents are looking at me like. Psst. He said we check it regularly. I said, "So, like how often? What's regular? Once a year." Like you check it once a year and it goes through leaves and we're drinking it. Anyway, then my son was going Psst. But when you when you start Disturbing the status quo, and you know, leaves might be fine to take out chemicals from the lawn juice. I don't know. Um, I don't know. But when the marchers close the streets, the white liberal person that Martin Luther King wrote about from the Birmingham Jail goes, "Oh, they're just—they're just creating a backlash." They're creating hostility against their cause if they weren't so disruptive. I mean, really, um, they would get what they want eventually. Frederick Douglass says, no one gives up power without a demand. You don't want to get what you want eventually. You want to push. You want to shine the light. You want to say, hey, this is wicked. And if you have to shut down the highway, you have to shut down the highway in order to be heard. These are the only tools in the toolkit of someone who has no power. Does that make sense? You have to disrupt. And if there's hostility because of the disruption, as Dr. King said, that hostility was already there. The disruption just brought it to light. Because people who are comfortable with the way things are would just prefer to have it never disrupted, of course. But people who are not comfortable with the way things are, use the prophetic voice. And everybody hates a prophet because a prophet will tell you things that are not fun to hear. A prophet will demand that you change things that are working well for you. And a prophet will disrupt your life. And sometimes will keep it from raining for three years. I'm not the troubler of Israel, Elijah said. You're the reason for the trouble. You are trying to believe in this God and this God. And so your legs are different. You're limping along trying to believe in this God and this God. You have to make a choice and stand with both feet on one God. And I'm going to show you who the real God is. We're going to have a showdown, a duel of gods, if you will. Bring all the prophets of Baal and all the priestesses of Asherah and all the people And we're going to meet at Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a sacrifice. So, I don't know why he did this, but he did. Ahab brought all the people and all the priests of Baal. The priestesses of Asherah, however, are not mentioned. I think they stayed home with Jezebel. They were like, oh, I'm not getting all up in the middle of that, no. So, the prophets of Baal were there, and Elijah was there. And he had courage of his convictions to go against the crowd, like our hymn says. Um, You stand against the crowd. It takes a lot of courage, especially when the crowd wants to kill you. Um, everybody was hungry for Elijah's blood because he was just a pain. And so he said to the priests of Baal, you bring two oxen and you choose yours. He was giving them every advantage. You choose yours. Put him on your altar. There was already an altar of sacrifice to Baal there because Mount Carmel was a holy place. And there was a ruined altar to the God of Israel there. So the prophets of Baal put the ox on the altar. And Elijah said, just don't light the fire. Because Baal, you know, is shown with a lightning bolt in his hand. He's like Thor. And so surely Baal can send fire down on your sacrifice and light it up. And so the priests agreed to try this, and they were dancing, and they were chanting, and they were doing their religious thing, and um, hours went by, and toward the middle of the day, Elijah started trash-talking pretty bad, and he would say, hey, uh, maybe your God's asleep. You should probably yell louder, and so they yelled louder, and they danced more frenziedly, and he goes, man, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's thinking deep thoughts. And they got so desperate, they started to slash themselves with knives and add their own blood to the blood on the altar. That was the way of that particular religion. It's totally against the law of the God of Israel to mutilate yourself in any way. Um, Another interesting tidbit. If you're Jewish, you're not supposed to get tattoos. Same thing. So you're not supposed to mutilate yourself in any way. And um, yet the priests of Baal were trying to get Baal's attention. And while they were dancing in a more and more frenzied way and adding their own blood to the sacrifice, Elijah was resetting up the altar of the God of Israel. He, was, he asked for help getting 12 stones for the 12 tribes and put the stones together and put his own ox on there. And then he asked them to t- dig a trench all the way around the altar. And then he asked them to get three huge jars of water. Now, remember, it hadn't rained in three years, so this was a precious resource. He said, pour the three jars of water all over this ox. Just really make it soaked. And now do it again, three more. And one more time, three more jars of water on there. And so he was standing there in a crowd of people who wanted to kill him with priests that had gone into a frenzy trying to get their God to light up the sacrifice. And really, this is a dramatic moment. The pressure is on, for sure. Sure. And if there was ever a time when you asked God to really come through for you, this would be the time. Um, And he said, bring fire down from heaven. And this huge fireball came. And the ox was consumed. And the water was all consumed. And it was a very dramatic validation of Elijah's claim that God was the only real God. And so then he... He said to the priests of Baal, If you would like to become priests of the real God, come on. No, I'm kidding. Um, he killed them all. All 450 of them. And Ahab um, said, So it's going to rain now, right? And Elijah said, Oh, yes. Go eat and drink because you don't want to get caught in the rain. And Elijah went up to Mount Carmel, up on the mountain, and and he put his head between his knees. And I don't know, some commentators say this was humility. Other commentators say this was despair. Like, is God going to come through for you again? Um, but, you know, God had come through for him with the, with the bread for the widow and with the widow's son and with the ravens and with the fire. Why wouldn't he, uh, you know, continue on the path of coming through with rain? But he sent his servant, he kept his head down, and he sent his servant up to the top of the mountain to look out over the Mediterranean. Um, seven times he sent him up there and finally the last time the servant came back down and said I see a cloud the size of a man's hand the size of a man's hand and Elijah said there's going to be rain the, cra- the cloud came in grew, the skies grew dark and the rain came and Elijah since Jezebel was still alive ran away again And he was in the cave, and he heard a voice that said, God is going to come see you now. So Elijah came to the mouth of the cave and covered his face, and there was a huge earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And there was a huge howling wind, but God was not in the wind. And there was a whirl of fire. God was not in the fire. And then he heard a still, small voice. Have you heard that phrase before, the still, small voice? That's from this story. He heard a whisper. And God said to him, go find, I know you're tired, I know you don't want to do this anymore. Profiting is very hard work, and nobody likes you. And so you have a successor, his name is going to be Elisha, go find Elisha, and he will be your successor. And so we went down, and he found Elisha, who was a big brawny young guy plowing in the field, and he said to Elisha, "I'm, I'm... you're going to be my successor. And Elijah said, Elisha said, okay, let me say goodbye to my family. Um, and Elisha killed all the oxen that he was plowing with and cooked them for a goodbye meal for his family. And I don't know how they responded to having all their plowing oxen killed to eat. but And he started following Elijah. And Elijah said, I'm, I'm going to the city of, um, of Jericho. You stay here. And Elijah said, Elisha said, no, I'm, I'm coming with you. And Elijah said, okay. So they were going to cross the River Jordan, and Elijah took off his mantle, and he hit the water with the mantle, and the waters parted, and they walked across the Jordan River on dry land. And they came to Jericho, and there were a bunch of people that said, We've heard it said that Elijah is coming here to die. Um, Have you have you heard that? And Elisha said, "I, I don't. He he doesn't tell me anything." And so a whirlwind of fire came and took Elijah up into heaven. And this is why in the legends that are. Non-biblical Elijah comes back again and again in the in the guise of a beggar or in the guise of a homeless person, or in the guise of a widow, or in the guise of a starving child. And that is Elijah coming back, and it's said that when Elijah is treated as he should be, that the world we dream about will come. So we're told by these stories, too. Imagine that we're seeing Elijah everywhere we go. And when we have Passover Seder, we leave a seat. And we leave the door open for Elijah in case he wants to come. Elisha has a lot of stories of his own, including um, one that's a favorite of some of y'all, where Elisha goes to a village. He's bald, apparently completely bald. And um, there are boys in the village that are making fun of him, calling him baldy. And he just, he's cranky that day. I don't, he, he calls two bears out of the forest and the bears uh, mangle all the boys. <laughs> Nobody likes a prophet. <laughs> I reread that story for this week, and I had thought it was like two or three boys, and the bears maybe mauled two of them, but it says the bears mauled 42 boys. <laughs> like, that's a, of, that's a lot of teasing boys from one village, but maybe the whole thing is symbolic and means something entirely different. I, I don't know. But I love the story because... I love the story that says... Disruption comes from wickedness. That's what disruption comes from. Nobody needs to disrupt if everything is fair. Does that make sense? And disruption is a tool of the powerless. And so when you are asking a rude question or saying truth to power, and they look, they roll their eyes, or they do that thing where they shake their head and give that little laugh, or they go, (laughs) well, no, that's not true at all. Oh. They all do it. I don't know who they learned it from, but they go to the same wickedness school. And they shake their heads and look down and laugh. You watch on the news if you don't see it quite a bit. Not naming any names. If you are a nice liberal person, and yet you feel disrupted by some rudeness on the part of people who are not getting a fair shake tell yourself this is the way it goes you have to try to fix the unfairness and then you have to join the disruption because sometimes three years without rain is all the wicked king will listen to sometimes getting your highway shut down is all the people will listen to disruption is caused by wickedness Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and the sparkle